Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Jared, uh, and like Andrew said before, uh, the, the apprentices have been taking over. <laughs> the past couple of weeks, we are going through our favorite psalms. And the psalms are really designed by God to awaken and express the thoughts and the feelings of God's people. We hear it in the psalms, we learn in the psalms about how to think in times of all the full range of human experiences, joy, anger, peace, discouragement, and we learn from the Psalms not only how to think, but how to feel in those times too. And today our focus is on Psalm 51, how to deal with feelings of guilt well. Because what makes someone a Christian is not that he doesn't feel discouraged. It's not that he doesn't sin and feel miserable about what he's done. What makes someone a Christian is the connection that he has with Jesus Christ and how that shapes how he feels about his guilt and his discouragement and his sin. You might be surprised about why Psalm 51 is my favorite, favorite psalm. It's kind of depressing, right? But if you find a psalm like this, you find the gospel. So why don't we pray this morning and ask God to illuminate this psalm to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know us so well. We learned last week that you know the very hairs on our head. You know how many there are. You know exactly what our week's been like. You know exactly the struggles that we've come to with church. You know exactly where we are. And so, Father God, as we consider this psalm this morning, I pray that we would come to you as our gracious God through the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would do this psalm among us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it was 2008. I thought I was the coolest kid ever. I had just got my license. Uh, my parents had bought a car, which I was allowed to drive around. I had a girlfriend. I even had the emo fringe. You know the one, the mid-2000s emo fringe. It was kind of gross. I was going to show a photo, but I don't want to put you through that pain. <laughs> and one time I was driving to a gig in Wellington. You know, I was super excited, kind of living the, the rock star dream. And, you know, driving along in my car and uh, kind of everything was going well. I had the windows down, the rock music cranked up. You know, it was, everything was exciting. Um, I, you know, as a 17-year-old, you kind of get a little bit, uh, what, how do you say, you kind of get a bit confident in your driving. You, you know, you t text a couple of uh, sneaky texts, you know, you speed past a few cars. Let's say that the law of the road was more of a guideline to me at that point, and everything was going well until in my pride and my rebellion, I took a corner way too fast and smashed into the side of the road. I was fine, but the car was absolutely totaled. Have you ever had a moment where you've messed up? Where you know you're to blame, there's no one else to point the finger at, and it's clear that you have done something terribly wrong? Well, in Psalm 51, we hear about someone in that state. We hear about someone who's messed up badly, who has sinned, and there's no one else to blame except himself. The first thing to notice here in Psalm 51 is actually the heading. 
You know, sometimes the Bible will kind of add in headings uh, for you along the way, just like that weren't part of the original text. But in the psalm, the headings are actually part of the original writings. So in Psalm 51, we hear the context about which this psalm is placed. So let's read the title, title together. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. And so to best understand this psalm, we need to know the context, the straightforward, unembellished story from which this psalm is placed. And it comes from Second uh, Samuel 11. But I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase through the story to kind of paint a picture. David, right? David is king of Israel. In fact, he's king of Israel at the very height of Israel's history. They've experienced unprecedented peace and prosperity because of David's leadership. And David's chilling at home one spring evening. Uh, he, you know, while his uh, armies are out battling uh, for the kingdom, he's at home just enjoying some of the spoils of war. He's probably hanging out in his room, playing some guitar you know, with his emo fringe. You know, he's just chilling at home. And he wants to go up for some fresh air. So he decides to go on his palace roof to kind of overlook his kingdom. You know, wow, this is, you know, it's good to be king. Let's do it. go check out the kingdom. And he's out on, the, on, the, on his rooftop. And he sees the movement of water. And he looks a bit closer. And it's a woman bathing. Instead of looking away, he, he calls to his attendant. And he says, who is that woman? And his attendant says this in verse 3. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now you see, David and Uriah, they're friends. They know each other. Uriah is counted as one of 37 men who was counted as defending David's life. In fact, David owes his life to Uriah. But nevertheless, David sends messages to get Bathsheba and bring him back home to sleep with her. The king of Israel, the man called to lead God's people, is now an adulterer. But it doesn't stop there. It gets worse. Not long after this incident, Bathsheba uh, calls back to David and she says, I am pregnant. Now, this is really bad publicity for the king. Adultery? A baby outside of wedlock, this is bad news. So he tries to cover it up. He tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from battle. And he kind of greases him up a little bit. You know, have a little bit of the, some nice food, have a couple of wines, go home to your wife. So he can make it look like a legitimate baby in the hopes that Uriah might sleep with Bathsheba. Make it look legitimate that way. You know, it's not my baby, it's Uriah's baby. But it doesn't work. Uriah is a man of honor, and he will not lay with his wife while his friends are laying down their life for the kingdom. So it doesn't work. David resorts to plan B and arranges to have Uriah sent to the front lines in the hopes that uh, you know, he'll likely be killed. So he can quickly marry Bathsheba and make the baby look legitimate that way. One sin on top of another. This is the insidious nature of sin. It doesn't stay stagnant, it spreads. 
adultery, murder, and deceit to cover it all up. Some commentators say here that in this short little story, David has broken every single one of the Ten Commandments. And things seem to be okay for a while until Nathan the prophet comes to him and confronts him about this sin. And David breaks. He's plunged into the depths of despair. Everything is hanging on a thread. How can he recover from this? How could he look at himself in the mirror again? How could he face God again? And how could Jared in 2008 face his parents for what he's done? In this account of Psalm 51, we gain insight not only into the subjective experience of someone who's at the bottom of the barrel because of their sin, but how he got out. We hear that it's because he repented. And what I want to do this morning is kind of highlight three different aspects of stages in David's repentance and why it was so effective for him. Not only how we got out, but how we triumphed as well. So I've got three G's for you. And my first G is from guilt. In the depths of David's despair for what he's done, we get a glimpse into the misery of David's guilt. David confesses that his sin is extremely serious. In fact, he seems to kind of be belaboring the intensity of his guilt. even goes as far to say this in verse 4. Let's have a look. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. Hang on a second. Bathsheba is violated. Uriah has been murdered. Deceit is everywhere. Like imagine if you were Bathsheba's mum or like Uriah's dad. What do you mean, David, when you say, God, you alone have I sinned? Well, when you want to get rid of a malignant tumor to stop it spread in your body, you have to cut right down far enough so you can get the tumor out. You have to cut in all the way so you can get it out all the way. And David here, he's got the scalpel. He's cutting in deep. He's cutting to the core. And he recognizes that his sin is only sin because it's against God. Now, the point isn't that Bathsheba isn't hurt, Uriah isn't hurt, the kingdom isn't hurt. That's not the point. None of that is diminished. But that the reality of sin is that it's fundamentally against God. He is the author of life. He is the arbitrator of right and wrong. He cannot have anything to do with sin or sinful people. And to reject God is to reject life itself. Sin is always against God. And David learned this from Nathan. If we have a look at when Nathan confronts him, he says this in uh, Samuel, Second uh, Samuel 12. Nathan comes to David, as sent from God. He says this, Why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Because, and he goes on to say, because you have despised me. He doesn't say, why did you hurt Bathsheba or why did you kill Uriah? But why have you despised me? 
See, sin isn't just an action that we do. It's not just a rule that we break. It is a despising of God and a preferring of the fleeting pleasures of this world over and above God's majesty, His glory, and His honor. There's a kind of repentance that focuses on the outcome, which you end up kind of hating the consequences, but you don't actually end up hating your sin. But David here, he's not trying to justify himself like that. He doesn't blame the pressures of being king. He doesn't blame the good looks of Bathsheba or his biological urges or anything like that. He wants to justify God. You know, sometimes we're so wired to defend ourselves. But look at what David says in the second half of verse 4. You are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. God is justified. God is vindicated. God is blameless. And if God were to cast David into hell, he would be right. This is radical, God-centered repentance. And when you think about it, a guilty conscience is actually a, a gift from God because it helps us to see our sin for what it truly is. Without feeling the weight of sin, without knowing our rebellion against God, we wouldn't come to Him seeking His rescue. We wouldn't come to Him in repentance. If we didn't recognize the gravity of our sinful condition, God's salvation would be laughable to us. Because until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin is bitter, Christ will never be sweet. Sometimes, for others, it might feel like you can't escape the feelings of guilt. Um, you know, it's always there. It's, you, can't, you can't escape it. Look at what David says in verse 2. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is ever before me. It's there when I wake up. It's there when I lie down. It's there all the time. I can't keep the tape from playing over and over in my mind. One time, I, I, we were having a music practice for church, and things just weren't going well, and I got pretty frustrated. I ended up actually snapping at someone um, because we weren't just getting the, the part right. And it was kind of like, it wasn't like an explosive kind of anger, but it was just a mild tone of frustration. You ended up just snapping at this guy and kind of letting it out on him. And then we kind of moved on. No big deal, right? But as soon as my head hit the pillow that night, I could not escape the feelings of guilt. The tape was just playing over and over in my mind. My conscience was eating away at me. What seemed so insignificant at the time was now keeping me up at night. I ended up apologizing to the guy, and my conscience helped me to see that I hurt that person, but the feelings of guilt ultimately led me to see that my sin was against God. The, the gravity of my conscience told me that it was against God that I had sinned. What areas of life this morning do you feel that prick from the Holy Spirit 
where he might be convicting you of sin? Is there an area of life where you're suppressing guilt? Are you intentionally trying to avoid God in a particular area of life? Whether it be uh, anger, it might be gossip, deceit, it might be porn, laziness, pride, apathy. There's different, so many different ways we can sin. But friends, don't suppress your conscience. It is God actually helping you to see your sin for what it truly is. But God doesn't leave us in a state of guilt. He's not out there to kind of guilt shame us or anything like that. He wants us to come to him because he offers a gracious solution. Leads me to my next point. David has cut deep into his malignant tumor. How do you get it out? You've cut deep enough. You've seen the, the tumor for what it is, sin for what it is. But it's really important that we don't make the deep wound of guilt the last wound. From the pits of despair, David calls upon his one and only hope, the grace and the compassion and the love of God. David's first words out of his mouth in the psalm is uh, verse 1. Have a look with me. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. See, David knew that uh, God was a gracious and loving God. This is the, uh, the God that Israel and David served, and he has a, he has, uh, he's been known to be a gracious and a loving God. There's an expectation that God would be able to deal with Israel's sin and blot it out. But how is that possible? Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, mate, what David did, even as the leader of Israel, is pretty horrific, and I totally resonate with you. How is it possible that David's guilt can be blotted out? Well, David and, his, and Israel were looking forward to a time to a Messiah who would be able to deal with this fundamental problem. And now we live on this side of the most significant event in human history when an innocent life was taken to pay for the sins of the world. God's gracious acts culminated in this one event, Jesus, by his once-for-all sacrifice, purchased forgiveness and provided our righteousness. There's nothing we can add, there's nothing we can subtract from that, but our righteousness is through Christ. If you have a look with me at verse 7, David says this, Purify me with hyssop, and I will be made clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. See, Psalm 51 is is the story that no matter how far gone you are, no matter how deep you fall, you can always be brought back up. No matter how broken, you can be washed, you can be cleansed, you can be made whiter than snow because of the grace of God displayed in Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of Jesus is outrageous enough to cover the worst kinds of sins, to cover the worst kinds of sinners like David and me and you. This is the free gift of God's grace offered to anyone who believes in Jesus. This is the gospel. If you're checking out Christianity, 
it's an amazing gift of grace. This is the, this is the very foundation of the Christian faith. This is grace. And it's always exciting when a, a, a new Christian comes to recognize their need for a Savior. They have such a contagious uh, kind of healthy um, love for God, but also a desire to kill sin. Super healthy. It's actually quite cool. But what if you've been a Christian for 20 years? Do you kind of graduate from Psalm 51 and move on to like more happy Psalms, you know? No, Psalm 51 is for you too. Some Christians kind of flatten out the Christian life. They, they kind of say, oh yeah, I prayed a prayer once, I'm covered, I've got all my sins paid for, I've got my ticket into heaven. And there's no wrestling with sin. There's no striving. They kind of just cruise on with life. No more discouragement, no more guilt for me. I'm just going to cruise on with life because my sin's been paid for. Now, I want to be real clear. If you trust in Jesus, your sin is paid for. Past, present, future sins, all done because Jesus has bought that forgiveness. But in view of the holiness of God and the horrors of sin, it is fitting that we appropriate the blood-bought forgiveness by prayer and confession every day. That we come to God's mercy and His grace regularly. Daily appropriation of forgiveness since it's fully secure. Not since it's fully secure, I can do whatever I want. You're saved. Just hang out. Just, I don't know, watch TV, watch a few movies. It's sweet, right? I'm covered. If you think repentance is a one-time thing that you did when you prayed a prayer once, you've actually missed being able to revel in the grace of God each day. You've missed the opportunity to be transformed by His grace and mercy as we look to the cross. The sins we deal with, greed, envy, lust, anger, unforgiveness, these things can have a power and a force over us that can disrupt our capacity to know and enjoy what we know is objectively true. Imagine for a moment that there's a king and a, a king, this king loves his wife, and uh, he'll do anything for her, right? But one day, the, the wife gets kidnapped by some rebels, right? And, and the kidnappers send a letter to the king, asking for a massive ransom, billions and billions of dollars. And the king, he loves his wife, so he'll do anything to get her back. And so he pays the ransom at great cost to himself, and the kidnappers let her go. She's free. But imagine if the wife at that point, she didn't go back to her husband. She ended up just doing some shopping or going to the movies or, or something mundane like that. That's wrong, right? She'd be, she should be going to her loving arms of her husband. But isn't that exactly what you and I do when we neglect the grace and the love of God on a daily basis? See, the, the prayer of David in verse 10, let's take a look. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That should be our prayer most days. Now, the cross isn't the reason we don't ask for forgiveness. The cross is the basis of our confidence that the answer will be yes. 
when we realize the horrors of our sin and the holiness of God, it should drive us to pray. Something like this. Thank you, God, that I have been forgiven for the guilt and transgression of all my sins. But Lord, this sin that I'm struggling with, this is paralyzing my heart and cripples me from enjoying the salvation that you have brought through the cross. It helps, it's stopping me from delighting in you on a daily basis. That's a powerful prayer. Even though you know fully that your sin has been paid for by the cross, that's a powerful prayer to pray. We believe in a glorious message of grace, and this ought to drive us to gladness. This is my last point. See, the more I read over the psalm, and in preparation for this talk, the more I saw that David is actually asking for so much more than forgiveness. How is it possible that this guy has done terrible things, as we heard about, and he sings, he, he comes out of the depths of despair and he ends up singing? Did you notice that as we, as we went through? Look at verse 14 and 15. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. He's not just singing about God's mercy. He's singing about his righteousness. How can God come to the place where God's holiness and his righteousness would not be crushing to him, but would be a comfort to him? Well, he prays for the joy of God's salvation, for a spirit that is joyfully willing to follow God's word. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Isn't it amazing that nowhere in this psalm, especially after all he's done, is he pray, he's not praying about pure thoughts. I mean, it started with lust that led to murder and deceit, right? Or did it? Why isn't he crying out for pure thoughts or for sexual restraint or men to hold him accountable? Why isn't he praying about protected eyes against lustful thoughts? Because he knows that sexual sin is a symptom and not a disease. Have you ever struggled with a particular sin that you've tried to repent of, but you keep coming back to it time and time again? People give way to so many types of sins because they don't have joy and gladness in Christ. You know what the best way to fight sin is? It's to find the gladness and joy in the Lord. That's how we effectively fight sin, to find gladness and joy. That's going to be much more powerful than willpower. Look at verse 12. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Now, we say that he lost the joy of his salvation because he sinned. Well, yes, that's true. But he also sinned because he had lost the joy of his salvation. We only ever sin because we lose the joy of our salvation. He basically says, I had forgotten the joy that I had with you. I had forgotten your unfailing love. I wasn't ravished with it. I wasn't enjoying my salvation that had been bought by you. Before that temptation ever came with Bathsheba, I had forgotten you. Friends, this is the way we cut deep and we pull the tumor out and the tumor heals and that, that wound is healed and forgotten about. 
This is how we effectively change. Because joy in the Lord, gladness, far surpasses any other fleeting pleasure of this world. I'm going to ask you, how have you gone with reading your Bible and praying? You know, those are the two kind of cliche things that we talk about. You know, have you been reading your Bible? You've been praying? Well, this is how we start to enjoy God. It's not like a, a, a box that we should check as Christians. Oh, yeah, I've done my, done my duty. No, we should do this so we can enjoy God. We can hear from God in His Word, and we pray to Him in response. When I crashed that family car, I was absolutely terrified about going home. I had to face the disappointment and the wrath of my parents, their, dis- their disapproval, for what I had done. But as I turned up home in a completely wrecked car, what I experienced was so touching. I got out of my car and I came to my parents and I said, I'm so sorry for what I've done. You know what my mum said? She said, don't worry about it. I'm just glad you're home safe. Amazing. That didn't diminish the damage to the car, but knowing their unconditional love at that point, knowing the comfort and the joy of being their son made me willing to honor them. It made me willing to live more responsibly. Not only did they love me and care for me at that point, but that compelled me to be a better son. They didn't blot out my rebellion. They didn't um, overlook my error. You know, we still had to face the consequences. But I was willing to honor them because they loved me unconditionally. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. It's through joy, through gladness in our God that we can have a willing spirit to defeat death, to defeat sin and kill it. Whatever sin might be in your life this morning, whatever feelings of guilt the Holy Spirit might be laying on your heart, come to God with Him. His arms are open wide. He will not treat you how how your sins deserve because His mercy abounds. And his grace is an amazing gift. Come to God. Repent of your sins. Lay them down at the foot of the cross where it's all been paid for. From guilt to grace. And don't just find forgiveness, but revel in the joy of the Lord. Be glad in God. That's the key to true repentance. That's how we fight sin in this life. Wherever you are this morning, come to God. Bring your guilt to Him. Come before His grace at the cross and find gladness in Him. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, You are amazing. You are so gracious. You are loving. You are perfect. You are holy. And Lord, we know our sin. Sometimes our sin is ever before us. Sometimes the feelings of guilt can be overwhelming. 
But Lord, we know that when we turn to you, we can find incredible grace. Lord, help us to remember the joy of our salvation that has been bought by the blood of Jesus so that when temptation does set in for us, we can say that our joy and gladness is in you. That we will not seek the fleeting pleasures of this world, but seek the joy and gladness that you offer because you sent your Son. That we do not come before your throne under your judgment, under your justice, but we come before your throne and we can call you our Father. We come as your children and that you love us so dearly. And so, Lord, I pray that if we need to repent for sin this morning, that we can come to you and be honest about it. We can um, seek to change, not by willpower, but by joy in you for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.